1: are they alive or not? And why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or unaffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years, and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person? Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. If you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a 1,000 pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, We're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, My guest today is Frank Aylward. Uh, He's an assistant professor of biological sciences at Virginia Tech, and we're going to talk about uh, various microbial topics, probably about giant viruses, et cetera. So thank you for coming. How are you doing?
3: Well, I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me.
2: Yeah, if you would, tell me about your, uh, your background a little bit and your research.
3: Absolutely. So, yeah, so I'm mainly interested in microbial diversity. You know, I'm sort of interested in all these amazing microbial life forms that are uh, in the biosphere around us. You know, they obviously, you know, we're in a pandemic right now. So obviously, there's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people are, uh, are aware of the importance that uh, viruses can play on our everyday lives. But there's just this huge, enormous diversity of, uh, you know, bacteria, archaea, other viruses out there that play critical roles in human health, uh, evolution of life on Earth, biogeochemical cycling in the biosphere. Overall, you know, microbial life is just difficult to overstate the uh, importance in the uh, for the life on for life on Earth. So, um, okay. so yeah, that's really what uh, what got, what uh, what my lab is focused on.
2: Yeah, well, I see people that deal with microbes. You know, some will focus on bacteria and certain ones. Some will focus on viruses certain ones. It's rare that I've met anyone that talks about archaea exclusively. And fungi, there's a few people. Again, also more rare. But uh, what, which microbes in particular fascinate you or ones are you working on right now in terms of experimentation?
3: Well, I'm, I guess I'm interested in the whole thing, the uh, the whole tree of life and, uh, and viruses too. So I don't know if that's uh, a, little, a little too broad or maybe I should narrow down a little bit. But um, yeah, specifically, more recently, I've been working on giant viruses, which are a very interesting group of uh, DNA viruses that infect eukaryotes. And um, they're re- relatively new. They haven't really been studied in too much detail uh, until uh, a little less than 20 years ago, is really when the research really took off. And, um, you know, as the name suggests, they have very large viral capsids. Uh, they can be seen in a light microscope, which is very unusual for viruses. Yeah, they have. Now,
2: can, can you see them? Um, can you see them in a fluoroscopy setting where you literally seeing them in vivo, or is it just still under light microscopy, but they're still prepared samples?
3: No, you can see them. I mean, they're they get up to one point five microns, so you know they're just as big as some as some bacterial cells, uh, larger actually. And so, actually, they, when they were first discovered, people thought that they were bacteria, and it was only after subsequent experimentation that it was realized that they're actually viruses. So that, that's kind of cool. Uh, it's kind of interesting to think about it because, you know, historically, if you think about, uh, you know, viruses in the uh, textbooks, the idea is that, well, the first virus that anybody saw with their own eyes, so to speak, was a tobacco mosaic virus. And that's because we needed, we needed uh, electron microscopy to really see these, you know, incredibly small variants. But now when you sort of think about things retrospectively, you know, people have probably been looking at giant viruses under the microscope, uh, since Lewin and it's just that we didn't know that they were viruses because they, you know, they, they kind of look nondescript. They're, uh, but, they're, but they're very large and they, they look like bacteria. And so, uh, you know, but they've been there the whole time. And they're, they're abundant in, you know, freshwater environments. They're abundant in the ocean. They're, they're in soil as well. So they're all over the biosphere.
2: What about their specific entry mechanisms into cells? And has that been observed under like microscopy? Has anyone been able to do, let's say, a time lapse of a giant virus entering a cell, so that we could really like shed light on, um, you know, how it enters and see all facets of it.
3: Oh yeah, that's that's really interesting. So a lot of one theory about why these viruses get so big is because they're they're mimicking microbes. So that's actually a mimi virus. You may have heard of mimi virus as kind of the most famous yep. of the giant viruses. So mimi virus, mimi actually stands for mimicking microbe, and it's thought that uh, it infects amoeba, and so amoebas they sort of just go around and phagocytose things and eat them. And so it's thought that they these particles that they think are a meal. Uh, and then actually it's a virus and the virus starts a, a active infection then. So that's one theory as to why the viruses may uh, get to be so big. That's sort of a, a way to uh, trick these protists into um, eating them so they can start an infection.
2: When you say big, do you mean that in terms of uh, the amount of uh, nucleotides they have in their genes or... Is it literally physically the size of the, Oh, it's obviously physically, as you mentioned, but do they also tend to have bigger, uh, you know, more genes, longer sequences, et cetera?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so the, the largest viral genome is a Pandora virus, and that's 2.5 million base pairs, which is absolutely enormous for a virus. Um, that's, you know, several times larger than the, uh, some, some bacterial genomes that are out there. And the genomes are just very strange and mysterious. They're full of these novel genes that are poorly characterized. It's not really clear what they're doing. It's not really clear if they have sort of a benefit for the virus. Uh, It's not clear where they're coming from. So it's really kind of fascinating. There are a lot of mysteries in these viruses. That's one reason why I'm so fascinated. One reason I'm so fascinated about them, and I I love studying them so much, is just because there's so much that's not known. Uh, And their genomes in particular are just very mysterious.
2: Is there any like molecular clock analysis mechanism for viruses so you can tell, you know, how old they are? So are giant viruses more recently on the scene, or are they more ancient than other viruses that are smaller?
3: Well, that's a great question. In terms of molecular clock analyses, I can't think of any. I think I can't think of any. Uh, But there have been some recent analyses looking at certain highly conserved genes in their genomes. So they have this uh, multi-subunit RNA polymerase. And it's the same kind of multi-subunit RNA polymerase that's in our cells. It's found in eukaryotes, it's found in bacteria, and it's found in archaea. So it's kind of a primordial enzyme. And there have been some studies that have looked at the evolution of these multi-subunit RNA polymerases in these viruses. And they have traced the origin back to very, very early in eukaryotic evolution. So, you know, It's difficult to come up with with exact numbers, of course, but if you think about eukaryotes as being maybe like 2.3 billion years old or something like that, you know, these viruses are potentially uh, just as old as that. So, you know, many, many billions of years old, they've been infecting eukaryotes and and co-evolving with them over
2: time. Oh, but beyond that, you know, eukaryotes came on the scene that long ago, but beyond so, they're not necessarily as old as viruses that might affect stromatolites, but we don't know within the 2.3 billion years when they appeared on the scene.
3: Exactly, exactly. And to some extent, uh, you know, viruses are interesting because they, sort of evo- can, they can evolve through this process of chimerism where, you know, pieces of one virus are picked up by another virus and they're sort of shuffled around. So it kind of depends on how you define this one particular group of viruses because the actual genetic components could be older and they could have come from other viruses that predate eukaryotes. And maybe, maybe it goes all the way back to some of these, you know, really primordial uh, viral lineages. But, you know, if we, if we look at these uh, giant viruses as, as we define them today, uh, yeah, they're probably not as old as those, you know, incredibly ancient viruses and stromatolites and things like that.
2: Chimerism, what, it seems like there may be agency in there. I don't know. Do you, do you think that viruses are alive and have any, uh, any agency or do you think they're not alive? Like, what are your thoughts around that?
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today.
3: Now back to the show. Oh yeah, that's a great question. That's, you know, I don't know. The answer is I don't know. And I think that that's one reason why I'm so fascinated by them. Because in some respects, I think that they are alive. And in other respects, I think they're not. So they're kind of in this weird hazy middle ground and uh, you know, it's kind of like they're partly alive. You know, what what does that even mean? It's kind of a fascinating question. So in, in my research group recently, we did some analyses looking at all of these different viral genomes that we were able to put together from giant viruses in the environment. And we found a lot of interesting metabolic genes that are typically not found in viruses. And these are metabolic genes that are involved in glycolysis and the TCA cycle. And metabolic pathways that are, you know, historically, they've really been thought to be cellular metabolic pathways. They're sort of uh, defining features of cellular life. But these viruses, uh, they, they encode them in their genome. So, you know, how can you explain that, right? That's not really something that you'd think of in an in a, um, in uh, inanimate uh, entity, right? So, uh, and we're always taught in in, in textbooks that viruses don't have metabolism, right? So if viruses don't have metabolism, and if that's one of the reasons why they're not alive, then why do they have these metabolic genes? And so one explanation for that is this so-called viral cell metabolism. So the idea there is that, okay, well, the viral entity itself is actually just kind of like the seed, right? So if you look at a tree, you'd think, okay, well, the tree is the living organism. The seed isn't necessarily the living organism, or the the seed of a plant isn't really the living organism, per se. So in the same way, the virion isn't necessarily the living entity. But when it infects a cell, and when these metabolic genes are activated, and when you start to see this viral metabolism, so to speak, take place, then you get uh, what's called a viral cell. So it's no longer... A cell per se, because it's been sort of taken over and co-opted by the virus, and it's sort of this, you know, interesting chimeric entity. So, in that sense, it's kind of like there is a metabolism, but it's not a metabolism that's distinct from the cell. So, it's kind of like this new, new nether region.
2: Right. Yeah. No, Patrick uh, Fortier. Fortier. Yeah. Just came up with the concept of the virus cell, right?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great concept, I think.
2: Well, going back to these giant viruses, size. So, since they're so big. Do they, you know, are their entry mechanisms confined to be, you know, being phagocytosed by the creature they infect? Or can they enter, you know, by binding to cell membrane receptors or clathrin-coated pits or anything? Or are they too big for that stuff?
3: No, some of them uh, infect using other mechanisms. So they're incredibly diverse. There are some of these viruses that infect algae. And they actually have sort of uh, pectinases and uh, enzymes involved in um, degradation of the algal cell wall that sort of are on the outside of the virion. And so they sort of use that to degrade parts of the uh, cell wall before they, you know, during attachment. And so in some cases, it's unclear exactly what the mechanism of attachment is. You know, studying these viruses uh, in, in, you know, a detailed molecular way is very tricky. So sometimes identifying exactly what the receptors are is tricky. But yeah, but there are certainly a a wide variety of different mechanisms other than just uh, being phagocytosed. It's just that the uh, the really large viruses that have been cultivated and analyzed in depth in the lab, they seem to be phagocytosed by amoeba. So that's why that's one of the more popular theories out there for why the viruses can get really big.
2: And I've heard with plant viruses, you know, since plants have this cell wall, I guess the viruses have to get in by, let's say, insects that will, you know, bite the plants and grind up some of the cell walls and allow viruses to enter. They seem to not enter, I guess... They going through the cell wall unless it's torn open or macerated by you know, a bug. But have you found that, you know, for instance, tobacco mosaic virus or other plant viruses can enter in different ways? Uh,
3: that's a good question. I, I don't know about that. I don't know about the other viruses, if they can um, they can infect in other ways.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
3: Yeah, I mean, it does sort of, uh, you know, raise the question, sort of the early evolution of these uh of these cell types, things like the cell wall, you know, chitin in fungi, and uh, you know, in diatoms, uh, in these, you know, diatoms in the ocean, they have these uh, frustules that you'll often see. Very, you know, they're very charismatic uh, images you'll see. They have these uh, silica frustules that encase the cell. Uh, it's what it sort of makes you wonder, you know, if what, what the early selective pressures were for some of these uh, structures to form. And in some cases it could be, you know, there was a benefit associated with evading viruses because it
2: sort of provides that physical barrier. So what are the questions that you're working on right now? Like what kind of experiments?
3: Well, we did that, uh, we had that one study where we uh, were looking at viral diversity in the, um, by generating these genomes from metagenomes. So in that case, we looked at all these publicly available metagenomic data sets where, uh, you know, DNA had been sequenced directly from environmental samples and we were able to reconstruct different uh, viral genomes, and that gave us—we're sort of trying to get a sort of a census of global diversity of these of these giant viruses in the biosphere. And another project was looking at the impact of giant viruses on eukaryotic evolution. So one thing that we found that was really unexpected was we found in some eukaryotic genomes the giant viruses had actually endogenized. So the giant virus genome had actually sort of integrated and become part of the host genome. And so this concept of viral endogenization, it has been known for a very long time. Uh, a lot of people have been uh, studying it with respect to retroviruses, you know, small RNA viruses. It's known that in the human genome, for example, there are a lot of uh, RNA retroviruses that have integrated into our DNA over time. Uh, but one thing that we were really excited about was that these giant viruses, their genomes are several orders of magnitude larger than RNA viruses. So when you get endogenization of a giant virus into the genome of, say, an algae that has a relatively small genome for eukaryotes, then you know it's it's almost like a chimeric organism, right? All of a sudden, in this, in this one case, we found ten percent of the genes in this one algae could be traced to these uh, endogenous giant viruses. And so, I mean,
2: in humans though, we're about eight to ten percent too. I, I thought you were going to say like fifty percent of some organisms that are that, or a predominance of viral DNA. DNA.
3: Yeah, it's true. So if you add up all the different viruses, then it adds up to a large amount. But those are lots of different endogenization events that have taken place over a very long period of time. But with these uh, with these giant viruses, it can all happen all at once. It can, you know A huge amount of genes, thousands of genes all at once can integrate into the... Oh,
2: okay. So you're saying a single endogenization event can alter or add 10% of the entire genome of some of these creatures.
3: Yeah. In the one case we found 10% uh, was derived from viruses and there were, there were actually two viruses there, two endogenous viruses. So altogether it was 10%. Okay. So that's,
2: that's very significant. That's crazy. Yeah. I see what you mean.
3: Well, we just think it's interesting from the standpoint of it happening, you know, all at, all at once or over a very short period of time, right. It sort of uh, uh, raises the question of, you know, what kinds of genes could be contributed to eukaryotic genomes over time. These giant viruses have very complex genomes, as I mentioned, and they have genes involved in you know, cellular metabolic pathways. A lot of these other small RNA viruses, typically they're, they're relatively simple genomes. They don't necessarily have you know, these, these complex metabolic repertoires or anything like that. So when a giant virus endogenizes, it's not just contributing, you know, genes involved in DNA replication, RNA replication, you know, standard viral genes. It's also contributing you know, central metabolic pathways, they have uh, genes that are in the cytoskeleton. That was recently discovered, actually. Genes like myosin, things like actin, you know, cytoskeletal, cytoskeletal components that are involved in the, um, you know, the cell shape and things like that. Transporters that are involved in, you know, ammonia uptake, phosphorus uptake, things like that.
2: Yeah, if you were to look at these um, these viral components, these genes, where do, they, where do they appear in nature? What other creatures have them? Or are they, are they similar but alien forms of them?
3: Yeah, so we, um, we looked at a lot of these you know, transporters, metabolic genes, things like that. And we, uh, we traced their evolutionary history with respect to the viruses and their hosts. And in some cases, you, know, you, you see lots of different situations. So in some cases, it looks like the viruses had acquired the genes from the hosts relatively recently. And in that case, you can say, okay, well, maybe the the viruses, they acquired a gene from the host, and they sort of co-opt it during their infection cycle. In other cases, it looks like the genes were really very ancient. It was part of an ancient viral lineage. So in that case, you know, the viruses still got them from cells. It's just they got them a very long time ago. You know, once again, maybe uh, around the time of the origin of eukaryotes. And so some of these genes that we found in glycolysis and the TCA cycle, for example, uh, they form these really deep branching uh, evolutionary lineages that were distinct from eukaryotic life. So in that case, they're sort of like virus-specific metabolic genes, which is kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, like you said, you know, actin and myosin. You know, what if they're the exact same genes that appear in people that make actin and myosin, for instance? That would be interesting, or in some other creature. That's why exactly,
3: asked. exactly. So yeah, there's actually some theories out there that uh, key features in eukaryotes evolved not in eukaryotes themselves, but they actually were sort of donated from viruses. So there are theories out there about the evolution of the nucleus, even. Some people think that, okay, the evolution of the nucleus may have initially occurred because of, you know, it may may have actually occurred because of this co-evolutionary dynamic with giant viruses. So giant viruses, when they infect a cell, they'll oftentimes form these very complex virus factories. Uh, You know, they're kind of these mysterious entities. It's also called the viroplasm. Sometimes uh, there's this very mysterious entities inside of a cell where the the virions are produced, and in some ways they kind of have some similarities to a nucleus. It's kind of a you know it's it's a it's a speculative theory, but there's ideas out there that okay maybe some of these structures that we see in eukaryotes actually derive from these very complex giant viruses that uh, that infected the you know their ancestors.
2: Have you been able to watch an endogenization event and what happens to let's like, say an algae that? endogenizes one of these big viruses um you know phenotypically how does it change has anyone observed this
3: oh that's a wonderful question we're working on that we just discovered the uh this whole this whole process of endogenization relatively recently uh this was a a project that we um finished last year so yeah we're trying to get some experimental systems up and running where we can actually observe that because yeah i would love to know what the impact on cellular physiology is you know what exactly is the um you know, is there a benefit to having an endogenous virus? We don't even really know if there's a benefit. It could just be sort of a random process where every now and again, a giant virus endogenizes and the genes aren't lost. Just because eukaryotic genomes, they do have a lot of junk DNA anyway. There is a lot of sort of non-coding DNA in there. So there could just be viral genes hanging out. They're not really doing anything per se, but they might sort of uh, evolve a function later in time. So it's a little unclear if there's an immediate benefit to having an endogenous virus or if it's just sort of uh, hanging out like junk DNA.
2: We have examples of algae that have these endogenized viruses. And you can tell, again, that a vast percentage of their or a significant percentage of their genome has been altered. Like If you compare them to, again, algae that haven't had endogenized viruses, like, first of all, can you do the comparison? Do both forms exist? Or we only see the results of endogenization and then there's no you know, unendogenized algae to compare them to?
3: No, you, you can see both. There's a wide range. So, uh, it, you know, it depends on the timing of endogenization. So in some cases, the endogenization probably occurred a long time ago, and we're sort of looking at the remnant. And in fact, if you look at some of the, if you look at uh, the genomes of some plant, uh, you can still sort of see remnants of giant viruses. They're sort of, you know, they're, they're, it's a very weak signal, and they're very broken up, and they're found on lots of different chromosomes, but you can sort of see this signal of very ancient endogenization events. But if you look at other algae where the endogenization events occurred very recently, then sure, there's going to be a population and some of them have the endogenized virus and some of them don't. And so, yeah, in those cases, it might be possible to pinpoint a potential benefit that occurs immediately after endogenization, if there is one.
2: So is that what you're trying to do, is find a population of algae where some have the virus, some don't? And then again, examine phenotypically what they do and are they reproductively isolated and how do they interact and et cetera. How do they respond to stimuli differently?
3: Absolutely. That's what we're trying to do. It's very tricky. You know, getting these experimental systems up and running has been very challenging. So it's, it's slow going, but that's definitely the future research direction we'd like to pursue.
2: Oh, well, just not to be ignorant, but what, what's tricky about it? What would, what would be an example of an experiment that you want to do and, you know, what makes it tricky? I'm just curious.
3: Well, so when we found the endogenization events, we were doing a survey of genomes that were publicly available. So we just looked at the publicly available genomes of, of green algae in this particular study. And we, uh, we found the endogenized viruses, and we could sort of look at the, the genome dynamics there. But to actually do the experiments, you'd have to, first of all, cultivate a virus of a host, which is fairly tractable to work with in the lab. There actually aren't that many cultivated giant viruses. Uh, the vast majority, as I mentioned, are in amoeba. Um, So, you know, it could be possible to work with an amoeba amoeba system. But other than amoeba, there aren't that many hosts where there's a, you know, a well-defined cultivated giant virus to work with. So, So just cultivating the giant viruses to begin with is tricky. And then... It's also unclear if certain giant viruses would endogenize and other ones wouldn't. So even if we could cultivate a giant virus, it's unclear if it would even endogenize. You know, is it sort of a, is it a random event? It occurs, you know, one time out of a million, every, you know, one, one out of a million infections, or is it more part of the life cycle of the virus? Those are still open questions. So at the moment, we do think that there is sort of a pattern. We see certain groups of viruses that seem to endogenize more often than others. So we kind of know which ones to look for, but whether or not we can actually, you know, cultivate one of these viruses to work with in the lab, that's,
2: uh, that's a bit trickier. Yeah, what, what kind of experimentation do you, do you want to do in them specifically? Like, what do you hope to find out?
3: Well, you know, one hypothesis might be that um, if a virus, if an endogenous virus is present, then does that confer some sort of a benefit? And so in my mind, one obvious benefit would be, okay, well, maybe it confers resistance to other viruses, right? Because if a virus is there, you could imagine cases where maybe the capsid protein is kind of expressed, and there are some capsids that are produced, and those might interfere with the formation of other capsids from other viruses that infect. So maybe there's some sort of uh, benefits in in that way. You know, it prevents other viruses from killing the cell later on. So yeah, have, you know, having, having an experimental setup where something like that could be tested would be wonderful.
2: Um, what's the, uh, the the largest virus ever known, and how many genes does it have?
3: Well, the largest virus in terms of genome size is the Pandora virus, and that's two point five million base pairs. But that doesn't have the largest capsid. The largest capsid is this uh, Pythovirus sibericum, which is it has a smaller genome. It's about six hundred. Uh, kilobases, six hundred thousand base pairs, uh, but the capsid is one point five
2: microns, so that's quite a large capsid. Yeah, it's as big as uh, a lot of bacteria, right? Or a bacteria, bacteria bigger than that?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're Yeah, it's bigger than some bacteria, absolutely.
2: And do the viruses you study? Do they have proviruses that enter into them and affect them?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, so. We don't necessarily do a lot of work with the uh, the so called virophage, but yeah. But there were virophage out there, and uh, yeah, viruses are viruses. So that's another interesting aspect, right? Because if viruses if these giant viruses aren't really alive, then, you know, there are viruses that infect them. So it's kind of like you get this organism that isn't really quite alive and it's being infected by another organism that's not really quite alive. So it's a really, you know, strange dynamic. But yeah, but yeah, there are these virophage that are sort of like uh selfish almost kind of like selfish genetic elements and viruses and they they will they will uh sort of parasitize the virus during the infection and produce, produce uh, their own uh, variants that way.
2: Any mechanisms of entry understood or observed of, uh, you know, virophages entering into viruses? It's, it's kind of weird, you know? It's really weird to consider.
3: Yeah, it is very strange. It is very strange. Not a whole lot is, is under, understood there. You know, there have been some sort of diversity studies, you know, that have revealed that, okay, there their virophage are very broadly, broadly distributed, just like giant viruses. And there are some specific systems where these have been looked at in detail, you know, that the, the viral phage can integrate into the genome of the host in some cases and sort of like activate itself during a virus infection. But yeah, but beyond that, there's still a lot that we don't know about those systems for sure.
2: What do you think will be the future of your research? Like what what's going to happen your your you work in your lab in the next year or two?
3: Well, I think there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of uh, really interesting uh, research in the future for giant viruses. You know, like like I said, they've been, you know, Mimivirus was only discovered in 2003. So that's very recent. Um, there's still all sorts of amazing work to be done out there, not just with giant viruses, but with other viruses as well. You know, there are were, there were new virus viral groups that are discovered uh, fairly regularly now. So, you know, understanding what these viruses are doing, what their hosts are, what the diversity is, how they influence the ecosystems around us. You know, there's a, um, uh, in the literature, some people refer to viruses as the, you know, the puppet masters. You know, they're kind of like puppet masters that uh, are uh, uh, influencing all of these interesting cycles around us. And so uh, you know, biogeochemical cycles, they'll infect cells and you know, through their viral cell metabolism they kind of take over cellular machinery. So understanding the details of how all of that happens I think is gonna be a really important frontier uh, future research. And then with regards to the giant viruses in particular, I think that there's also some, some possibilities for biotechnology. You know, these viruses have a lot of genes that you typically don't see in viruses. They have these, you know, glycoside hydrolases, these pectinases. Uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in that for uh, biotechnological applications. And so, you know, these giant viruses could be analyzed from that respect in the, in the same way that people have been looking at bacteria and
2: archaea. Well, very good. Well, Frank, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? You
3: uh more about my work well let me see now i mean i guess check out the uh the lab website we have a lab website where we got all the all the recent uh work that we've been doing and uh all the lab updates so that's just you know aylwardlab.com
2: so it's a-y-l-w-a-r-d com. that's correct yep okay very good well frank thanks thank you for coming i really appreciate it. it's really interesting stuff you're working on oh thanks for having me
1: it's been great if you like this podcast